You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. And I'm hoping to get all the way through chapter 6 this morning. It is a pretty good chunk of scripture, but I think we can take it on. In chapters 1 and 2 that we've already looked at, we talked about Jesus being better than the angels. And he was made a little lower than the angels when he came in human form. But after a while, he was exalted far above the angels. Um, That is, in his glorified state, after his work on earth was complete, the redemptive work, he was exalted. He was seated at the right hand of God, far above the angels. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In chapters 3 and 4, we talked about Jesus being better than Moses and better than Joshua, respectively. The rest that Jesus brings us is compared to the rest that the Israelites found in the promised land of Canaan. Although the Israelites did find rest in Canaan, And that is compared to the rest that we have on this earth living with Christ. There was yet another rest spoken of. That was not a rest that we would find in the world, but this is the rest that we receive when we enter into heaven. That is the eternal rest and the true rest. The Israelites had to fight giants coming into the promised land. Yes, they that was their land of rest. They still had battles to fight, just like we do when we come into a life with Christ. It's not going to be unicorns and rainbows. There are battles, there are giants in our lives, even as Christians, especially as Christians. But the rest that we will have in heaven for eternity, there's no striving, there's no giants to face. It's a complete rest. So that's what we saw in chapters 3 and 4. Now this morning we're going to break into chapter 5, and we're going to see that Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's so much better than the mortal men who served as high priests before him in the Levitical system. And we'll take a, a little look at that. So breaking into Hebrews 5, the first verse reads, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. But because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was." Uh, forgive me if I refer to the author as Paul. I believe that the author of Hebrews is Paul, but 
Um, I may not catch that every time I go in there. So that is my assumption coming into this. Um, so I, I may just refer to the author as Paul, but know that we are not certain of the authorship of Hebrews. But the writer, supposedly Paul's argument is this in these first few verses. Whatever is excellent in the Levitical priests is also excellent in Christ, and even more so excellent in Christ. He has everything that they have and more. He meets every qualification of a high priest in the Old Testament law, then some. He is so much better than this old system. Verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest in this Levitical system had chiefly two responsibilities. He represented the people of Israel to God. Sinful men can't come to God without a mediator. The high priest would act as that mediator, offering the offerings from the people for their sins. Now, the high priest also represented God to the people of Israel. So it was a two-way street. He was the in-between, or the mediator. Since the high priest was the go-between, they represented God on earth to his people. That is a pretty lofty responsibility. And they had to conduct themselves in such a way that they truly represented God. Hebrews 4.15, which we looked at last time, says that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That yet without sin is very important. He conducted himself as God, being sinless, holy, on earth with men. And this is one reason that he is our perfect high priest. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Again, I point you back to that 15th verse of the last chapter, chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you've ever been married, you know that that experience helps you help people who are struggling with marriage. If you've not been married, you're not a great candidate for helping someone with their marriage, right? I think we can all agree with that. If you have kids, you're not going to go out and find someone who doesn't have kids to help you raise your kids. It, it doesn't work that way. In the same way, Jesus shared temptations that we have. And because of that, he can help us when we are tempted. He is the perfect high priest. Verse 3, because of this, because he was tempted as we are and remained sinless, he is required, as for the people, uh, so as for himself. So we're talking about the human high priest. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so so also for himself, 
to offer sacrifices for sins. So being a man, the high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the people. Uh, He was not sinless. This man that was appointed to be high priest. On the day of atonement, he first had to offer a sacrifice to cover his own sins. He was keenly aware of the fact that, yes, just like all these other people, I am sinful. And I need a covering just as much as they do. There is something about living in grace, in the grace of Christ, um, that makes us all very, very equal. I don't need grace any more than anyone else does. And I certainly can't look at someone and say, man, that guy needs grace way more than I do. I'm a whole lot better than that. There's no such thing. It's a great equalizer. Because if I am blood-bought and you are blood-bought, we're worth the same. It's the same blood that went to buy both of us. And it's the most precious thing in the universe, the blood of Christ that was paid for our sins. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. The sacrifice that he made was purely for us. He was already perfect. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. A man in the Old Testament couldn't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to be a priest today. He couldn't do that. There was a certain family that you had to be born into. You had to be born into the tribe of Levi. You had to wear Levi jeans. I wouldn't be able to fit in because I like Wranglers, but that's a different story. But you had to be born into this line of priests. If somebody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I feel like preaching today. And you come up here, you deliver your message. That's not really how that works. You can't just wake up and decide that you want to be a priest or preach. It doesn't work like that. But now, you don't have to be born into the family of preachers. But God calls the ones who he anoints. And no man takes this honor to himself but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So in the Levitical system, you had to be born in to being a priest. You had to be born in the line of Levi. He mentions Aaron right here. He says, just as Aaron was. Aaron was called by God to be, he was actually the first high priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses. We all know the name Moses. Um, But he has a very interesting start. Um, He he gets this Levitical priesthood off to a great start, as we'll look at. Flip to Exodus 32.24 real quick. So Moses has just gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and Aaron was 
presiding over the people down below at the base of the mountain. Um, And Moses comes back down from receiving these commandments, literally written on stone by the finger of God. And he comes down to these people who have just constructed a golden calf and are worshiping that as God. Moses, when he sees this, obviously goes straight to Aaron, the guy in charge. He's like, what is going on here? What is happening? Why have you done this? Read Aaron's response with me. His response was this, And I said to them, Whoever, speaking of the people, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Like, I just gathered up the gold. I threw it in there, and out pops this golden calf. I had nothing to do with it. So this is the start of the Aaronic priesthood. And this is just to illustrate that sinful man is not the same as sinless Jesus. This Levitical priesthood was run by sinful man. And we know from Scripture that the blood of bulls and goats cannot settle a sin debt. It was a temporary measure uh, to provide until the Lamb of God was given over. Just temporary. It was never meant to be perpetual. Verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he says in verse 5, you know, just like the men who were called to be priests did not choose that position, but they were born into it. They were called by God. So also Christ did not choose that position. He was called by God. And God said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He also said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning talking about Melchizedek because the next several chapters in Hebrews are going to deal with that. So we'll save that for a following week. In chapter 7, we will see that an oath was also made to confirm Christ as the great high priest. Now, verse 7 who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You remember Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed that God would take away this cup. That's what he said. That cup that he was referring to was the cup of suffering that he knew he was about to partake of. The cup of suffering on the cross. That is what he's referring to. If there was any other way for men to be saved, to be brought back to the Father, Jesus 
asked, God, would you please make that a reality and save me from this immense uh, turmoil and suffering that I am about to go through? As a man, Jesus did not want to, to take on that pain. But he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. At the end of his prayer, Luke twenty two forty two. Jesus says, But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In the end, he submitted his will to the Father. He said, God, I don't want this. But if this is what you have for me, and if this is the only way, let me do it. He learned obedience in the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Perfected here means to carry through completely, to accomplish, finish, or bring to an end. This word conveys the idea of completion. He has been perfected. Jesus was perfected when his redemptive work on earth was completed. He went up and he sat at the right hand of the Father. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obey him through faith. Called by God as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. And hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Thank you, Paul, for that um, interesting word choice. But there are things that we can take out of that. Paul is wanting to talk about Melchizedek more, which he will eventually do, but not at this second. He says, of whom we have much to say. He wants to teach them more about this Melchizedek. Now, admittedly, this figure of Melchizedek is shrouded in a bit of mystery. There is pretty heated debate about who this guy actually is. Uh, some say it's a theophany, a Christophany, um, a Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Some would say maybe that's not the case. Uh, maybe he is just a type of of Christ and not Christ himself. Regardless, uh, we have some interesting things that we can pull out of this, and we'll get more into that next week. But he does say, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, yes, I would agree, since you have become dull of hearing. Saying, and you guys, and we'll get into this more, but you guys are not mature enough to actually understand what I'm going to try to tell you about this Melchizedek figure. You have become dull of hearing. So now we're talking about spiritual maturity, okay? One of the signs of spiritual maturity in a believer is that you want to hear. You're searching for the truth, and you're searching in God's word, and you're not dull of hearing. Okay, here he's saying 
guys, um, specifically, he is writing to the Hebrew Christians of his day, saying, guys, you're, you've become dull of hearing, and it's making it hard for me to teach you the next things. You're stuck in the principles of the faith when you need to move on to solid food. Verse 12, he goes on to say, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, when we talk about spiritual maturity, it's not just an accumulation of years. Okay, you can be really old and still be spiritually immature. That is possible. Rather than just an accumulation of years, it is also an accumulation of depth. You must go deeper into your walk with Christ. How do we do that? We do that by diving into the word. Read the word. Study it. I encourage you to read ahead. Read into what we're going to talk about next week. Do a little bit of study on it. Go home today after lunch. Flip on a recording from a different pastor. Let them teach you things. And I promise you, they are going to teach you something that I didn't get to. Whether I missed it or we just don't have time to cover it like they did, you will learn something else. You may even have a completely different takeaway from it. I mean, it may hit you differently. Dive into the word and use it. We'll talk about the use of milk and of solid food. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, so at this time in their walk, they should have been able to study enough uh, to actually be able to teach other people about the faith. Instead, they needed someone to teach them again the first principles of the oracles of God. And he is going to list those first principles a little bit later. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Babies are cute when they're babies, right? I think we can all agree on that for the most part. I saw one baby at lunch yesterday. Her dad was holding her. She had this full head of hair that was going every which way, and he was feeding her a bottle. Super cute. I bet that dad does not mind changing his daughter's diapers. But when she's 14... It's not going to be cute anymore. Yeah. He is not going to enjoy that as much as he did when she was young. There's something about a 14-year-old that needs their diaper changed that's not right. 
there should be growth there. There should be learning and adapting. So babies are cute when they're babies, but an adult that acts like a baby is not cute. Okay, there needs to be growth. And it's so much the same in the spiritual context. The first things are the first things. You have to grasp that well. But once you've grasped that, move on. Go deeper into the word. Study deeper. Try to get more out of it. And by this time that Paul's writing, these Hebrews should have been able to teach others. But instead, they're trying still to grasp the basics. And this stunted growth is not normal even in the Christian life. Uh, But we should all be graduating on to deeper things. In 1 John, John addresses three groups of people. He addresses the little children, young men, and the fathers. And I do believe that he's referring to spiritual maturity here, Um, not necessarily their ages in years. To each group, he affirms something different in regards to their walk with Christ. As they mature, he addresses deeper and deeper things. This is from 1 John 2, 12 through 13. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. So what does he say to the little children? Your sins are forgiven you. That is how we have all come to repentance. We have come into a life with Christ because our sins were forgiven. Little children, your sins are forgiven you. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. That's the next step. We read in Revelation 12, 11, talking of the saints, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. How do we overcome the wicked one? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. He addresses the fathers. He says, you have known him who is from the beginning. From the beginning. It's hard for us to comprehend the beginning. I would say it's impossible for us to comprehend the beginning. Before time, what was there? God. God is outside of our time-space continuum. You can look at John 1.1 and 1 John 1.1-3. Here he talks about Jesus in regards to the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. To the fathers, these spiritually more mature individuals, This is what he addresses. You have known him who is from the beginning. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. This word partakes 
is translated in the King James as useth. For everyone who useth only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. How do you use milk? You can drink milk, but he's talking about milk in the context of scripture, the basic foundations in scripture. Those who use only the basic foundations are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They can only apply those very, very basic things. My sins are forgiven. So I live a victorious life, and you do. But you need to go deeper and deeper than that. For he is a babe. But a mature or a maturing Christian can make application of solid food. So we graduate from milk and we go on to solid food. They can use the more complex things in the scripture and apply them to their lives. Paul writes to Timothy, exhorting him to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. From 2 Timothy 2.15. In the same way, we must be diligent. And that word diligent, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, can also mean to labor. Labor to present yourself approved to God. And that is certainly a labor. Okay, it's not easy. It's not easy to have the discipline, the wherewithal, to open your Bible first thing in the morning and get into the Word. That is probably one of the hardest things that you'll get yourself to do, at least starting out. After a while, you develop a taste for it. You, When you graduate from baby food, start eating bananas. I guess that's the next thing. I haven't had any kids, so I don't know. So when you graduate from baby food and you start eating bananas or some kind of solid food, you start to develop a taste for that. And you don't want to go back to baby food. You want to, you want to stick with bananas. Maybe even graduate to Cheerios. You know? You always want to be progressing. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We can't fall asleep one night using our Bible as our pillow and expect all the information in it to osmotically transfer into our mind. It doesn't work. I've tried it, and it doesn't work. You have to open it up and read it, study it. You have to grapple with it. Spurgeon said that he never preached on a passage until it bit him. And it will bite you if you open it up. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. But... Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So this is a mark of maturity, being able to delineate between good and evil. That's something that we can see in mature Christians. Therefore, so in light of all these things I just said, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says, let us go on to perfection in verse 1. Perfection, again, carries the meaning of completeness. Let us go on to completeness, to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith. Now, I want you to remember this little snippet of the first verse, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. This is going to come back into play here in the next few verses. But these Jewish Christians were struggling to repent from dead works. As Christians today, we struggle to repent from sin, just straight up sin. They are trying to be freed from the law, which they are now bound by. It's the same idea of ceasing from this toiling and believing in Christ, putting your faith in him. But the language is tailored specifically to these Hebrews that are being written to. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands. Okay, and this laying on of hands, I believe is referring to a Levitical act of the laying on of hands to the sacrifice. Okay, I don't actually think that it's talking about ordination, where in the church we will lay hands on someone to ordain them as a minister. I believe it is talking about the um, Hebrew laying on of hands. When a sacrifice was brought to the temple, the priest, and I believe in some cases the person who brought the offering, would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice while its throat was slit. And that was a laying on of hands, symbolic of the transference of the guilt from the person to the animal. By laying on your hand, you transferred your guilt to that animal. And that is symbolic of Christ taking our guilt, placing it on himself. That is what they were struggling with. You see, when we understand this in the Jewish context, They were struggling to understand that, yes, my sins have all been paid for by this one sacrifice that was made. I don't have to keep going back to the temple, to the priest, making sacrifice after sacrifice, um, running me out of livestock. I don't have to do that anymore because there has been this more perfect high priest who has mediated this transfer of guilt from me to him. This is what he's talking about. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. The Jews would have been uh, very well versed in these last two principles, resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead was widely believed by Jews, save for certain sects, such as the Sadducees. Uh, They did not actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. But many, many, many of the Jews did believe that and of eternal judgment. 
of course, they are worshiping, they are coming to the same God that we are. And they know that in the end is eternal judgment. Also keep in mind, the people who are being written to, these Hebrew believers, only have the Old Testament at this point. They are just now coming to the conclusions which we have very plainly laid out for us in the the New Testament. So let's cut them a little slack, okay? And this we will do if God permits. This is referring to letting us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation, yada, yada. So we will go on to perfection and talk about uh, the deeper things if God permits which uh, the writer does do in chapter 7 through 10, mostly with Melchizedek, and then on through the rest of the book. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, verses 4 really through 8 are very difficult verses. And I'm warning you now, I'm not going to be super dogmatic about this. It's difficult to be. I am going to give you my current stance and why I believe what I believe. Okay? Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned." For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tested the good, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I mentioned just a moment ago that these Hebrews were called to repentance from dead works. This is relating specifically to those Hebrews. Same with the laying on of hands. I believe that is related specifically to the Hebrews coming out of the law and into grace. This insinuates a direct and a specific application of this text to the Hebrews, even through verses 4 through 6. And it is my position that this passage is talking about those Jews who have come to a knowledge of Christ, whether a complete or an incomplete knowledge, I can't really say. I would venture to assume it is an incomplete knowledge. Uh, They are not born again. If they fall back into the dead works, which they were somewhat coming out of, if they fall back into those, into the dead works of the law, They are putting Christ to open shame. Very plainly. They are effectively joining the ranks 
of their forefathers, who at this point in history would not have been very far removed, probably their fathers or their grandfathers, who literally mocked and crucified Christ. Okay, they are joining their ranks. They are completely renouncing any type of faith they have in Christ. Christ is not who he says he was. He was not the son of God. Um, He is not effective as a sacrifice to remove sins. This is what they are effectively saying. And by saying this, they put him to an open shame. Now, I'll remind you, if it was possible for a man to be saved through the law, through any type of work at all, I believe God would have taken the cup of suffering from Jesus. He would not have made him endure the things that he endured. But there was no other way. You cannot go back to works and be saved from works. You must be saved through the Lamb of God. Now, if you're concerned, I understand. Let me clarify a little bit further. The Old Testament uses the word return way more than it uses the word turn. It's God is always urging his people to return to him. If you are a believer and you're worried, oh no, did I do this? Did I fall away? Can I be restored? Yes, God is very gracious. Also, God is not going to say, I have done the hard part. I've gotten you here to salvation. You are now a child of mine, and you got it from here on out. Good luck. That's not what he says. He is faithful to keep us. He is faithful to keep his children. Jesus tells us the parable of the prodigal son. The son runs away, gets into a bunch of trouble, comes back to his father, and is welcomed and restored. John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He also mentions, oh yes, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now speaking of God, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will confirm you, also translated as keep you. He will keep you to the end that you may be blameless. That doesn't sound like a God that says, good luck, do it on your own. Um, Our God is a loving God. And I firmly believe that this passage cannot be saying that if you fall away from Christ as a believer, that you're done for. No. No. I think about how many times I've tried to run away and God just kept pulling me back. And it's not because of anything I did, certainly. Um, I was trying to kind of distance myself. But he brought me back in his grace. And I know that each one of you who have believed for any length of time can say the exact same. There's been times when you've been further from the Lord. And sometimes you may have run further than other times. 
but each time he keeps bringing you back. What a wonderful God we serve. He will not leave you stranded. And I can rest in this, and you can too. There's plenty of scripture that backs up this idea that God is going to keep you to the end. I think that this specific passage is in relation to Hebrew believers that Paul or the writer is writing to. Now, if that still doesn't comfort you, I want you to look at this. Go back to verse 1 in chapter 6. He says, let us go on to perfection. Verse 3, he says, this we will do. In verse 4, there's a shift. He stops talking about us and we, and he says, those. For it is impossible for those who, verse 6, if they fall, since they crucify again for themselves, the Son of God. And then we have in verse 9, he shifts back to we. But... And that but marking a contrast. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. So we are excluded from whatever kind of trouble this verse 4 through 8 is talking about. Uh, Let me pick up in verse 7, read through 8, and then we will continue on. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, take everything that I say always, and I will reiterate it this morning, um, as my words. Okay, if it's in the Bible, you can trust it. But I want you and I challenge you to look at it for yourself. Like I was saying earlier, listen to other teachers on the same passages that I teach. Develop your own ideas from the scripture. Okay, verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So I mentioned that the word but there indicates a contrast. So in contrast to the hypothetical Jew that fell away from the knowledge of Christ, whose end is to be burned, basically, um, in contrast to that, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Also, he says, yes, things that accompany salvation. So there are things that come with salvation, not just salvation itself. I also point out him saying that accompany salvation indicates he believes they have obtained salvation. Okay, they are not the ones who have fallen away. Um, and if you are a believer in Christ, if you are sealed and born again, you also have obtained salvation and all those things that accompany it. 
For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. There are so many things that we can give our lives to here on earth. Give your life to the pursuit of money, to the pursuit of happiness, to the pursuit of a wife, to the pursuit of a family, to the pursuit of a nice car, nice house. You can give yourself to so many things. There is one thing that is worth giving yourself to, and that is to the service of Jesus Christ. You can give yourself to many things. This is the one thing that you're not wasting your time with. Okay, at the end, whether we're taken out of here or you're taken out of here by dying, at the end, there is one thing that matters, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ, your advocate. God is not unjust to forget. That means he is just to remember the things that you do in his name. This is a worthy cause. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. This full assurance of hope can also be translated as the most certain confidence of hope until the end. The most certain confidence. This is the hope that we have as Christians. It's very much unlike hope that is in the world. When somebody who is not a believer says, I hope, dot, dot, dot. They're saying, well, I'm not sure if this is going to happen, but I want it to happen. That is their hope. Our hope is certain. And there is nothing that can take it away. Our hope is an assurance. It is the most certain confidence that we have. And what is the Christian's hope? Redemption. A life with God. Without pain, without suffering, being rescued from the bonds that we are currently in. The decay that the earth is in the middle of. John said that the earth is winding down. And we see that in science too. You can see all, all sorts of figures. The literal rotation of the earth is slowing down. The speed of light is slowing down. There's so many things that indicate a wrapping up of creation. Our hope is that this is not where we're made to be. We were created to be with God in full communion with him. For God is not unjust. Forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Interesting two words, faith and patience. I can sometimes struggle with patience. 
as I know that many of you could come alongside me in that. But it's not my favorite word to see in Scripture, just being completely honest. I like to get things done now. I like to do it. Waiting is not the the most fun thing ever, but it is through belief, this faith, and waiting, this patience, that we inherit the promises. We'll look at Abraham here, and Abraham waited many, many years, about 25 years between the time that God promised him a son and gave him his son Isaac. He waited and he believed. 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. How long are you willing to wait? What is it that you're praying for, that you're waiting on? How long are you willing to wait for that? A day? You get bored? You stop stop praying for it? A year? How about 25 years? How about 50 years? How long are you willing to have faith and patience to obtain the promise? For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, the lesser of two parties always swears by the greater. Okay, We see that with presidents. When the president is sworn into office, he places his hand on the Bible. The lesser swears by the greater. God has no greater. He is the greatest. There is no one by whom God can swear. So he swears by himself. God swore to Abraham to make a great nation of him. And this came after he demonstrated his faith with his son Isaac. And we'll read about that a little later in Hebrews. God said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. God gave his word to Abraham. Abraham believed it and had patience. He demonstrated his faith. He demonstrated his patience. Verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So this is what it must have been like in the past, where a man's word was enough. An end of all dispute. Now we have to have lawyers and people of that sort to deal with this kind of thing, oaths and promises. But there was a time when a man's word was all he needed. Thus God, 
determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Lots of big words there. God wanted to show us that he was serious. He was serious about the promises that he's made of eternal life and a life abundant with him. So wanting to show us that very plainly, he gave us his word. Wanting to show us that even more assuredly, he swore by himself. He made an oath to his word. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchanging nature of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now, if I was praying at night and I said, God, I want you to come into my room and tell me that you love me. And God came into my room and said, Kason, I love you. Do you think that would be good enough? I think I would wet the bed. But I think that would be good enough for me to believe that he loves me. What if he then swore, I swear by myself that I love you, just to confirm it. It's not needed. His word is enough. But wanting to confirm it further, he gives us this oath. That by two immutable or unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And that is the goal, to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What does an anchor do? It holds a ship in more or less one place. It can be tossed around a little bit, but it's not going to drift with the wind wherever it goes. You throw an anchor out when the seas get rough, when a storm comes. You throw the anchor out and it holds you in one place. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, this hope that we have of an eternity with our creator keeps us grounded. It keeps us in one place. And we are promised This is a promise of God that we like to overlook. But we are promised by God to have troubles in this world. He never says that your life is going to be unicorns and rainbows. Never in scripture will you see God say that. He does promise that it will be tough. And that people will hate you because they hated Jesus first. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us when that actually happens. But when the storm does come, and it will, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul so that we will not be tossed around by the wind and disoriented 
by the doctrines of the world, we will be grounded. We have an anchor of our souls, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. The veil was in the tabernacle. Uh, The Jews would have been very well acquainted with this idea. Uh, There was a holy place and a holy of holies in the tabernacle. And the priests in general, all of the priests, including the high priest, could enter the holy place where the lampstand was, where the table of the showbread was, the altar of incense. They could enter that place. Only the high priest and only on a certain day of the year could enter the Holy of Holies or the most holy place in the tabernacle. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, a very sacred relic to the Jews, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. The holy place and the most holy place were separated by a veil. This is the veil that the author is referring to, which enters the presence, presence capitalized, behind the veil. Jesus went to God in the most holy place on our behalf. He enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we will talk more about Melchizedek in the weeks to come. Very interesting character. I would encourage you to look at that before you come next week and just try to draw some conclusions for yourself and then... Maybe we'll confirm them. Maybe we won't. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay, that is going to wrap us up for this morning. Um, I do want to close in prayer before we're dismissed.